Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Our guest on this episode, Emma Gannon, is a podcaster, author, and Forbes 30 Under 30, whose blockbuster business and career show, Control Lock Delete, made her one of the biggest names in British podcasting. But all that success did not bring her happiness. Her latest book, The Success Myth, unpacks why. Let's join Hannah McInnes to tell us more. Delighted to welcome you, as I always am, on behalf of the How To Academy, and particularly excited to be hosting this conversation because I've just finished the profoundly thoughtful and insightful book that has inspired it. It's left me with so much to think about and so much to discuss. And the book is, of course, here on my screen. I hope it's the right way around. The Success Myth, Letting Go of Having It All. Uh, And I'm thrilled that we have its author here with us in all her wisdom to discuss it. Uh, Emma Gannon, I'm sure you will know, is many things, a Sunday Times bestselling author, broadcaster, novelist, and the host of the number one careers podcast in the UK, Control Delete. She's been a columnist for The Times and The Telegraph, many other places she's written for. She's published five bestselling books, and she now writes a very popular newsletter called The Hyphen, where she shares her ideas and and things that have got her thinking in new ways. But I'm going to leave it there because I think that we learn a lot about you, Emma, through this book and about what's sort of come to define you more recently. And that's where I want to start. It's a very personal book. So perhaps you could tell people the difference between the Emma writing this one uh, and the Emma who's previously released other books into the world. I do think this book has been completely different from the writing of it, but also the releasing of it. It's quite gruelling writing and releasing a book. And I think the message in the book I've tried to really sort of embody and live and I've always written books for myself primarily, really. So I am definitely trying to kind of live through it. But um, yeah, I think I've taken the pressure off. I think following a stint of burnout, which we'll probably talk about, my perception of success has changed. But it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. Collectively, so much of our ambition and success has changed post-pandemic. And even though I do write personally in this book, it's not really about me. I I did want to research success as though it was like this topic that I could get really nitty gritty about. It's almost marketed to us, success. It's like this thing that we're chasing, which doesn't really exist. So, yeah, I think that sets the scene for how I wrote it, but... Yeah, you 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 drew your you talk about your research. I mean, you did draw on personal experience, but also the podcast that I mentioned, and those are interviews with people that we would, I suppose, define as successful in their own rights. I, I guess was there anything that unified them? Yeah, I mean, I feel really privileged that I've been able to interview, as I'm sure you agree, to interview people who we sort of put on a pedestal and. 
I started the podcast when I was 25. I was this like young budding journalist with a microphone trying to find the secret to life. And after interviewing 400 people, I kind of realized in in hopefully not a too depressing way that A, they didn't have the answers and B, it really was elusive, this success that we are craving in society. It's such a cultural thing. Even from a really early age, we're told to strive and achieve and go up the ladder. But there comes a point in life where you reach the ladder or at least you see it, you're sort of unplugged from the matrix and you're like, what are we actually kind of climbing towards? Because, you know, time's ticking and I'm not really seeing the fruits of the labor that much. You know, I can, you can have nice things, but that doesn't actually translate into happiness. That's what the research says. So in a world where we're going through a cost of living crisis and the planet is having problems, I think it's really important actually not to be like tiny violin success isn't really that great. It's more what does make us happy and is it earning more money for the sake of it? Is it really, you know, sitting on a yacht? Like all of this stuff that I think makes us, I don't know, feel a bit uncomfortable now. I definitely thought success was something else and now it's not what I thought. Mm. I mean, you say, yes, society's obsession with success is the thing that you're sort of analysing and unpicking. And you've talked about the ladder. What do you think this version of success is that society kind of gives us and bombards us with that you're unpicking, essentially? Well, I'm definitely unpicking the career ladder and that sort of thing. And I've been writing about that for years and how it is more of a zigzag and might not put on LinkedIn or we might not have a baby shower for. But actually, they're really important. And success can be so many different things. It's so fascinating, I found you know, what should be such a simple question that you ask a few times in the book, which is try to imagine, you tell your reader, what you would want from life if none of it was on show, if you weren't advertising it to others, if you weren't trying to please your friends or your family, even if they're, you know, very well-meaning or this idea that society should have of you. And then try to imagine what your life would be or how you would want it to be. And it's actually profoundly difficult to to do that it's really hard and obviously I'm someone that's lived out my whole life online on the internet since I was 18 so you know to some people actually this is probably more simple and probably they're not showing their life and they're not needing to broadcast their pregnancy or whatever because we do see from social media that these big milestone moments do peak in traffic and engagement and it becomes almost addictive it's like this announcement culture, or I've got to have something to announce. If I'm not, then I'm failing. And so, I mean, it's not necessarily about stepping away. I I do write in the book about how we do crave status as human beings. That's not really going to change. We're social animals. We are wired to want that reaction from others. So I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I think I'm just saying like, isn't it interesting? Analyse their lives and think what success, what happiness, what feeling right within themselves looks like. Definitely. And I mean, there's tips in the book, but there's the macro and the micro. And I think sometimes we can get carried away with the 10 year plan or the five year plan, which in this economy is so hard to do. There's no way as well, we don't have control over a plan of that sort of magnitude. But then also on a micro scale, we can kind of get get into short term validation, which again, doesn't really set us up for a life that we really enjoy. But yeah, I agree. I think lockdown for many people did give us that headspace a little bit you know so many people now do go on the daily walk which before they probably wouldn't even think about but this problem we have in society where we can't really be with ourselves there's so many distractions it's so easy to numb everything out I guess 
what I'm saying in the book is that no one actually has the answer. And this book is definitely not telling you how to be successful or anything like that. It's more, what is your version and how can you get there? Because we're all so different as well. Perhaps you could give some of those examples, some of those bits of advice you do give about just finding the time, even just the practical time of day. However, it does depend who you are, but you do have bits of advice that you've gleaned from interviews, from your own experience about just giving yourself that headspace. Yeah, I mean, I actually wrote my book Disconnected about that very thing. That's almost like taking that to a whole new level of actually going back to basics. And it's funny, you know, writing a book about things that I think are quite simple, but I really needed it. And it turns out that lots of people did who bought the book, but really treating ourselves as like we're sort of a leaf that needs watering and will grow better if we're sort of nurturing that soil a bit more and giving ourselves, you know, sunlight first thing in the morning, having water, going on walks, calling a friend instead of texting them, like all these things where, you know, the research is saying that so many young people are going more analog and, Yeah, I think we kind of wake up to this at our own time in life. But I interviewed Donna Lancaster for the podcast about phase one and phase two in life. And phase one is sort of you're actually quite happy on the treadmill. It's it's actually really fulfilling. You're getting all these kind of brownie points. But then you might go through burnout, or you might go through grief, or you might go through something really serious, and you get forced into phase two, which is really peeling back all those layers. And um, some people don't reach phase two, some people are born into phase two but I found that really interesting obviously a lot of it is geared towards the idea of career success and examining how much that should mean in our lives and how much more we should attach to other things in our lives and I I feel like perhaps my pushback and the biggest biggest pushback you you might have is that you know you say your job will never love you back and you know many people you interview talk about it work can never fulfill us and I feel like you yourself in the book are sort of pushing back against it you say oh that makes me feel uncomfortable because obviously your work has been something that has been so important to you and some people might say that they feel nervous about the idea that their work can't be the thing that defines them and that without it they don't really know who they are without it that 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 gives them their drive and their reason of getting up for getting up every day totally and I really resonate with that and I think not to keep referencing my books by the way but it's the easiest way but with the multi-hyphen method that book is about being a multi-hyphenate because I believe that one job can't ever be everything to us. I think it's really kind of unhealthy to put all your identity into one place because that's a scaffolding that's very weak and it can break and you get redundant and your whole world falls apart. And it's kind of about building that safety of having your identity and your your sort of integrity in many different places, not loads, but, you know, having sort of your feet, like having like a tripod that can stand on its own. And so I think so many of us have a job maybe that we love, but we also have hobbies and we also have interests. And we're not really taught at school how to really get those interests out and talk about them. We're just sort of bred to go and get a job and stay in that job. So I I agree. I mean, I love my job, but I also think I had to understand that there are also two parts to a job. There's the culture of the job, like the industry, the money, the commercial stuff. And then there's sort of your human nature, which is like, oh, I love my job because I get to connect or I love my job because I get to write. But that's actually separate from the capitalist sort of structures around work. Well, the capitalist structures around work and 
around productivity because you know we should say and I'm sure people have bought the book already and uh, will be buying it imminently if they haven't but it's the success myth but it's split up into a number of different myths that you unpick the happiness myth the productivity myth the you are your job myth um, the ambition myth and we'll, we'll talk about some of them but productivity myth is sort of feeds into what you were just saying that society has this very unhealthy attitude to this this drive to kind of always be productive and like with so many of these things again the pushback is it's very hard to unpick that I mean generationally particularly because there are some people who are like the younger generation are unpicking that they're saying you know actually my mental health is too important to be sort of on this treadmill all the time respect that you know I'm going to switch off I'm, I'm you know and then there are older generations who see that as lazy but how do you kind of rebalance productivity across the work space and across society when there are a lot of people who've just lived with this idea for so long in their working lives the idea that you've got to be on switched on all the time working all the time yeah I mean I would say my parents generation for example do live that culture and I think that when I took a break for three months because of burnout they worried for me because you've got to keep doing you've got to keep doing got to keep going and it's like no it's okay to stop it's okay to rest I think culturally we need to teach people that more that you inherently are worth more than just the output that you create in this world but also I think it's such a big topic because productivity it isn't the same in each job or in each sector so you know, David Graeber, the amazing writer through the pandemic, I think he was talking a lot about bullshit jobs and how, sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on how to, um, you, <laughs> you can bleep are. it out <laughs> the podcast, but, um, yeah, he essentially was saying that we, we really learned in the pandemic that some jobs were essential and some jobs were unessential. And so sending emails back and forth each day really is that worth burning out for is there a way we could be more efficient? Is there a way where you can treat your staff better and really give them time to rest when they're doing something that isn't really kind of that urgent? I think we've kind of bastardized the urgent mentality of what is actually urgent. And you only have to look at the NHS and things like that to know that productivity, when it's working, is really needed. Like we actually need people working around the clock in those ways. But again, burnout is rife there too. So we're needing an overhaul in the way that we treat people because we treat them like machines. And as we know, with AI and everything coming, we aren't machines. Machines are machines. And maybe we can work in harmony better with them. Mm. I mean, you mentioned at the start your own experience with, with burnout. Do you, do you think that that was as a result of this sort of message that we get that you must be productive 24-7, you must keep going and, and you buying into that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think most millennials will remember the recession in which we kind of graduated into. And there were a lot of messages around that time that you were lucky to get a job, you you do anything, you muck in, of course, anyone at the bottom of the ladder in their career, you have to get your hands dirty and just go for it. But I think that mentality never stopped. And I think we're now kind of old millennials <laughs> in our 30s and 40s. And we're like, actually, maybe we can slow down a bit now. And what does that look like when you've been so scaremongered for so long? You were mentioning, in fact, before we went live into this conversation, that actually it sort of came to you in a way after you had digested all the information for this book. I suppose the lessons probably you learn 
after that experience of burnout. Do you know what I mean? You you were sort of learning them, but it's very much, and I said at the beginning, a very personal book because the book feels like as much as you're writing for your reader, it's sort of, you know, you are, are, are exploring these topics very much on a very personal basis too. Yes, and it's interesting because with writing, I mean, someone that I really look up to is Julia Cameron, who's now in her 70s. You've interviewed her, I believe, actually, for How To. She's amazing. And she does say that when we write, we are writing from a different place and there is more wisdom and there's more intuition. And I'll write a book and then kind of go and live my life and make endless mistakes and not take my own advice. But when I'm writing, I feel like I can actually really channel everything I've learned over the seven years of the podcast and things like that. But I think you can know something intellectually and then it sort of lands in your body in a different way. Like I knew it, but I didn't really know it. And the burnout sort of taught me how to really believe it. I mean, I found this book unbelievably um, helpful and and consoling uh, and sort of relaxing, really, because there are lots of things. I've mentioned these myths that you continually unpick. And as you say, you can intuitively know something. I can have read lots of books about these things, but they, they often just go over your head, whereas you really take each chapter and you go into such depth unpicking these myths and one of them again is the happiness myth I mean luckily for how to we've interviewed um, some of these wonderful names that you've mentioned David Graeber and uh, as you say Julia Cameron and another person whose book had such a profound impact on me that you mentioned is Susan Cain and this idea of bittersweet and I wonder if you could explain to people just this really fascinating chapter yours the happiness myth in which you sort of describe how you've basically stopped thinking of happy as good and sad as bad, and how that kind of feeds into this overall idea of a more fulfilling life that isn't geared towards this idea of success and happiness in properly inverted commas. Yes, that was an interesting chapter. I didn't really think I would include one on happiness because I feel like it's been spoken about so much. But actually, that book that you just mentioned, which I'll talk about in a sec, but also um, Rafa Ayuba, the psychiatrist, he really opened my mind with this. He released a book called Stop Trying to Be Happy, basically. And it was so countercultural because we're, ta- we're taught to want to be happy and that happiness is the goal and we can buy our way to happiness like it's a carrot on a stick. And um, the Susan Cain book, Bittersweet, again, it's what he was also saying is that every single day we go through so many different emotions and they all last around 90 seconds. But it's just a series of loads of different emotions and you'll do the same tomorrow and you'll do the same tomorrow and it's like this cycle and so wishing that we are 100% happy at all times is just unachievable we're not we're literally not physically wired to be happy all the time because we're more surviving we're in survival mode all the time so I found that really interesting and I also found it interesting the research around anxiety and how it went up 20% during during the pandemic but also we apparently right now are the most anxious nation ever in the history of whenever we've been (laughs) documenting things, which does include a lot of awful times in the past. And Martha Beck, the sociologist, has amazing data on this, if you're interested. But the fact that we are walking around like we're in a horror movie at all times is really serious for a lot of people. And so I really, I'm really happy that you did feel soothed by this book because that's why I wrote it. I think we need things at the moment that can soothe us because it's really, it's really hard and it's really difficult and there's so many messages thrown at us all the time. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders 
with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. But you say that you're learning to live and almost relish and cherish the kind of ebb and flow of happy, sad and emotions. And I think that's just such good advice for people to escape what you call this sort of ideal of happiness that keeps us trapped through doing that. Yes, because I do think we equate success in inverted commas with happiness. It's like you can tell people react differently to you when you're happy. It's like, oh, she's nailing life. But actually, some of the most interesting parts of my life, including the burnout, I wasn't happy, but it was really meaningful and really special and quite amazing. And so it's just sort of not, yeah, equating happiness with with the end goal, really. So actually, you said about the end goal, and that's, again, another profoundly relatable sort of soothing part of the book, which is your ambition myth. Or is it, sorry, the arrival myth? The idea that, you know, I've seen this in very successful people, actually, this idea of arriving in a place that you're aspiring to be, this idea of success is essentially, I'll get there and then I'll be fulfilled and I'll be complete and I'll be successful. And in your interviews and your research, which is so thorough, I think you've discovered that actually no one really gets to this place. It it is a myth. Yes, it really is. And It's a really hard one to write about, I think, because I remember reading about people saying, I've achieved X, Y, and Z, and I'm not happy. And I would almost be really frustrated because I'd be like, well, I would be if I had what you had. So this is annoying. (laughs) And I do talk about that in the book about how these things have been spoken about for centuries, but we can't quite grasp them. And maybe it is a case of, you know, you want to be invited to the party, um, but you might not go, but it's nice to it's nice to be included. It's nice to actually get somewhere and, and understand yourself. But I, I had to talk about it. I found it so interesting that I published my first book and I thought I would arrive. I published my second book. I thought I would arrive. It's like six books in and I'm like, what? It, like nothing's happened. You know, why do we think we will literally change as a person or that the clouds will part and, and life will change? And And again, maybe that sounds depressing. I think we need hope and I think we need goals. But I also think it's really fascinating that, I don't know, we we could waste our life thinking that we'll arrive one day when actually we're sort of living right now and that's all that matters really. I know, and a lot of people don't like the word journey, but it's hard not to use it because what you are saying is, is just try and enjoy the ride. Because if you are always looking for this next goal and this place to reach, you just do forget to enjoy what you're actually doing and and a lot of the book is trying to encourage readers to really check in and enjoy living it not just always aspiring for the next thing because it, it sort of wastes the joy of life yeah and I found it really interesting kind of reframing a lot of things like instead of a to-do list you write down all the things you have done that day or that week the whole you know I know the gratitude journals is a bit 2000 
10 but I do find it helpful to remind myself kind of what's good and what's what I've already achieved because it's so funny how the brain can make up the next thing you can literally have done something like totally out of your wildest dreams and you're already realizing you what's next what's next what's next so that's something that I'm always aware of and actually when I'm interviewing people I never ask them what's next now because I just think we really need to get better at you know actually kind of accepting where we're at yeah looking out and congratulating ourselves and patting ourselves on the back um, but I suppose one of the things, again, you, you talk about one of your other myths is the myth of celebrity. And one of the things that does drive many people thinking that there's there's more, there's more, I've got to get there, I've got to get there, is this idea of notoriety, of being famous, of being celebrated for what, and known for what you do. And of course, that's different for people in certain careers. But I think it does fuel a lot of the success myth is the idea that when you are successful I mean everything is inverted commas for those who are listening but when you are successful in inverted commas you are you know famous or celebrated a celebrity but you describe this as being quite a nebulous thing and and a myth too from a lot of research you've done people you've spoken to sort of interviews that you have watched with people we would think of as as being you know the pinnacle of their success as a celebrity Yes. I mean, I think that's the biggest myth in the book and something I've wanted to write about for a long time, to be honest, because I've worked in magazines for so long now and I've seen behind the curtain. I just think, you know, collectively as well as like a cultural commentary, we are going off celebrities. That's what the research is saying, that less people tune into the Oscars, less people buy magazines, less people care about mainstream celebrities the rise of the micro influencer and we we enjoy following people that are more like us now and you know gone are the days really of the Hollywood superstar it just doesn't really happen anymore and I think that's why you know everything is so nostalgic sometimes because we don't really have that so I found that interesting but I also found it interesting that you know being a celebrity doesn't really give you an immunity to heartbreak or depression or the tragedies of life and I know people sort of poo-poo that sometimes, but I think it's actually really important that we don't dehumanise people, especially, like, not especially, including celebrities. And also this conversation around nepotism, I found really interesting uh, around success. We think that if someone has got somewhere because of who they know, they'll be happier, when actually the data says it's the opposite. People who are successful because they have famous parents don't feel very successful because they didn't really do it themselves, which sounds obvious, but... I think sometimes we can get really jealous or bitter or annoyed that other people have more opportunities and that is annoying, but actually fundamentally you might feel more successful in your day-to-day life than than someone like that. I think it's Lily Allen who you, you quoted, didn't you, in that sense, that she was like, I just want to be famous in spite of, you know, not um, mm. having sort of a well-known family. But a lot of what you mentioned in terms of influencers and the way we see celebrities now is and we haven't really talked about it, but it's such a central part to many of the myths is obviously the online world and the way in which that enables us to persistently um, have to compare ourselves. In a way, it does bombard us with the messages of other people living the dream. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think that we would be in the difficult place we are unpicking success all the time and trying to make our lives easier without these myths if it weren't for online which sort of propagates them oh I think social media is so difficult to navigate now 
maybe even more so than 10 years ago when it was sort of a new toy and we were quite excited about it. I think now it's just so overwhelming. And yes, you're right. How do we know our definition of success? Back to the beginning when you said, how are we supposed to know? When we have thousands of people in our face living their best life or not, (laughs) we don't know. But it can be very confusing. And we, you know, we're looking at visuals that are basically an advert for someone else's life, like a Black Mirror episode where you're like, oh, I should want that. I might have that. Well, that looks good. Or maybe I should move house. And we're, it's so confusing. And so I think it's it's really important, I think, to, if you can, have a break from that. And that's another difficult thing. A lot of people need it for work. But I had a big digital detox last year. And it's amazing what comes to you during that time. In fact, I noticed because I mentioned you in something and it said that you had quiet mode turned on so you would not know <laughs> for that moment. I love quiet mode. I love quiet because I, I always wanted an out of office of social media. I was like, when are they going to bring this in? And thank God they kind of have. We should. There are positive things. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And more and more, I think you talk about, I think, the Australian sort of influencer in the book who started to say, actually, this is the reality. But there are a lot of people online now who are successful online or who are role models, if we would look up to them that way, who are being much more vulnerable and talking about the sorts of things you talk about in your book, exposing the myths of this perfect ideal. And that is a positive, isn't it, of social media? Like there is a lot more unpicking going on online now than there might have been a few years ago. I mean, there's a long way to go, but there's a lot more emphasis on vulnerability Definitely. But I think fundamentally, we can never know someone's life, even if they're live streaming. Um, It's literally impossible to get that from a 2D image or, or any sort of filtered aspect of someone's life. So even though it became almost trendy to kind of tell everyone your life story and show that vulnerability, which is great. I just don't know. I think I think Instagram, I don't think it's going to be around for much longer, because I don't think we will entertain that way of communicating for much longer it's just so flat and you know the rise of newsletters again like Substack the rise of long-form conversations like even people tuning in tonight I'd rather listen to someone talk for 45 minutes than see a pretty picture so I think we are getting maybe deeper into the heart of it you know social media hasn't even been around that long has it in the context of humans so we're still learning and it's interesting the evolution that's really interesting. So you're, you you think that that those snap insights into people's lives that you get from, say, Twitter and Instagram will be short-lived? I mean, I suppose I really hope so, because I can't see that it's great. I think so. I mean, that's what a lot of, you know, the sort of tech websites are predicting, that we are, we know too much now. So when we see someone advertising yet another product in a world where, you know, we need to be consuming less, quite frankly. I think we're kind of getting the collective ick around around it. I haven't asked you, you, you say that the book, uh, you write it for everyone, no matter where you're at or where you're going. And I'm sure many people will get f- very different things f- from it. You know, I said I didn't realise how much I felt that I that I needed it and how many lessons I learned from it. But I do have to ask, is it as much for men as it is for women? I mean, there's a part in the book where you talk about the path to traditional success. Again, all these inverted commas is is quite gendered. Um, so, I mean, would you say that women suffer more with these ideals of success they have to strive for than men? 
I really hope men buy the book and I hope they're not put off by the fact that there is a pale pink colour in some on some of the texts, which actually it's was quite it's, something yeah, it's that beautiful yeah, cover. I mean I yeah. It, it's it's funny with books because you know, you write the book and then you essentially do have a team of people who are in a building somewhere who are building it out as the package and the marketing and everything like that. So I think we collectively sort of agreed that maybe it would skew more towards women. But I think maybe that's because I was telling my story and I wanted to talk about career from my perspective, but also talking about the child-free conversation and stuff like that. But actually, it's all completely, you know, neutral in terms of who it's for. But yeah, I think I think it's more, that's more around the marketing of this kind of book. And we could have done it so many different ways. But when you talk about um, the path to success being gendered, I mean, it was really interesting part of the book. I was just trying to find it now. Um, one of the women who who talks to you about this, trying to um, sort of make success, that he, she, you know, she mentions to you the idea that there's a very sort of masculine idea of success and a sort of feminine idea of success and that in a world we should aspire to, those things would blend. I was trying to find that wonderful yeah, quote. Yeah, that's from... Um... Elizabeth Lesser, who who is incredible, all her books are amazing, and she talks about sort of the the his, the history really of power and success. So in fairy tales, in folklore, in m- mythical stories, it's always the man with the power who is successful because they are at the top of the tree of life, and they are you know they're masculine, they're sort of masculine in the way that they're having power over other people. And she talks about how in sort of the animal kingdom, female mammals are kind of more community-based and they do something called tend and befriend, which when they're panicked, they don't go into fight or flight. They actually kind of befriend who they're with, which made me laugh because yes, I definitely do that. Befriend, yeah. I definitely do that. When I panic, I'm like, just make friends with everyone. Whereas when men panic, it's like they get their sword out or something. So I thought that was really interesting that we sort of, I think downplay our qualities as women when we are successful, but we might be quieter, we might be more shy, we might be, I don't know, confident in a different way that isn't just loud. And I, I, I wanted to include that. Mm. I, I found the quote actually. It's, it's, I might read it. It was the pandemic was an accelerator of this change, and women and men have to make sure it stays that way. She, she says, "I dream of men fearlessly reclaiming words and traits that have been coded feminine: feelings, empathy, and communication. I dream of women reclaiming traits that have been coded masculine: ambition, confidence." authority uh, but what I dream of most is is women and men mixing it up blending it all together I mean it's a yeah it's a really interesting and you talk about this idea of sort of reframing that lens of success and, and and blending it up as she does but one of the things that we often think of is imposter syndrome you know when it comes to sort of trying trying to achieve these goals we want to achieve and and again it is quite heavily associated with women but one of your bits of advice that I highlighted and starred and wrote in my book is you say, think of identity as an explorer, not an imposter. And I wonder if you could sort of just share what that means and how that helps you. Yeah, I think that was kind of touching on using your curiosity more than your fear. And this is something that Elizabeth Gilbert talks a lot about, but I've really trained myself to do that now. So anytime I'm getting really anxious or scared about something, I can really reframe it as like, ooh, how, I wonder how that will be. I wonder what I'll learn from that. And that's been really useful. But I think with imposter syndrome, yeah, it's sort of been branded as a female issue, but I actually think it goes across the board. But yeah, it's just really looking at that 
it's it's not putting so much pressure on yourself to be perfect because you know I talk about how in other areas of our lives like running a bath or being a good sister or making a cake you wouldn't say I've got imposter syndrome over those things and so I don't really know why we do it so much in our career I think we can go easier on ourselves for sure. And the other thing uh, the other sort of bit of Elizabeth Gilbert wisdom that you mentioned on the same same theme of seeking perfection is actually to beware I was really interested in this to beware I hadn't thought to beware of the word balance actually I think I had actually thought oh I must strive for balance you know it always seems to be this perfect thing I must strive for balance and it is very often advised but actually you say that balance is tilting dangerously close these are your words not mine to the word perfect why would we yes, why do we yes. need to be wary of of preaching or or uh, adopting the idea that we must seek balance well, I think as well from working in women's magazines over those years, balance was really sold to women as as success. Like you can go to bed at night happy if you've done everything in perfect harmony and, you know, everything is split up as a perfect pie chart and you're being this and you're being that and you're balanced. But actually it's another stick to beat ourselves with to make ourselves feel bad about ourselves when we haven't been balanced because ultimately life is not balanced. There'll be times where you have to you know, get your head down and get the project over the line with your boss. There'll be times when you'll take time off and be probably a better friend. There'll be times where you are needing really to kind of knuckle down with your family. And we're always in that sort of dance of being our different selves and and trying to have it all, which, as I say in the book, is is a myth in itself. So yeah, I am wary of balance. And um, maybe that will surprise people because for so long we have been told that's that's the perfect successful equation. The other, th- in fact, you know, I must go to audience questions in a moment because lots are coming in and the How To Academy audience are a guaranteed askers, are guaranteed askers of very good questions. But I want to ask you very quickly about this ambition, kind of myth of ambition. And something that I, I found fascinating was you saying that you no longer um, feel like ambition sort of defines you, this revelation that you're no longer ambitious you talk of. And so I'm just interested to hear how you sort of reconcile with that, whether that unsettles you or how you sort of go forth on a new trajectory, perhaps it's phase two, and, and don't sort of define yourself as as ambitious. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people reach this point in different ways and at different ages, but I definitely had that feeling post-pandemic of, I don't know where my ambition has gone. It actually really frightened me. I was like, but that's my personality. I'm I'm ambitious. And suddenly I wasn't as much. And yeah, I had to really kind of make peace with that, but also reframe it. You know, I'm not, I'm ambitious for different things. I think that's what I'm saying in the book is you can be ambitious for a good life. You can be ambitious for an improved life, whatever that means for you. But I interviewed some people in the book who turned down promotions because they were not that ambitious, but they also knew that that would, they'd have to sacrifice other elements of their life if they were going to take that promotion and so I think so many people are being so much smarter with their decisions now and they're not really afraid to say "Mm, I don't really want that I'm really happy actually sort of covering my bases and trying new things or whatever so yeah I I love that that uh, chapter because it I was I'm also reflecting on the last sort of two decades of also what women have been told to be which is be ambitious we're finally able to sort of say we want different things, I think. Yes, you say, I no longer want, to, suddenly no longer wanted to be a world-dominating girl boss. <laughs> 
and that that idea um is something that you you i think think is is and you're grateful for it feels like disappearing this idea that that's what we should aspire to and you actually mentioned people like Farrah Storr and Lorraine Candy who we actually had on this podcast as people who who also seem to be redefining success in that way not gearing towards the have it all girl boss idea yeah definitely and yeah it's it's interesting because I definitely was on that train for a while in my 20s and I find that interesting in itself you know how ambition changes during our life. My ambition in my 40s might be different in 50s, 60s, who knows? And also you can get a reawakening of loads of ambition again. And so it's not sort of a linear thing. Um, But I've got a little like tortoise on my desk now. And it's just a reminder of just like slow down. I think that's sort of my mantra at the moment. And you have a lizard necklace. Explain what that's a reminder of. Oh, God, yeah. So the lizard is... um, something that I learned actually through a coaching course that I did around the lizard brain for anyone that doesn't know the amygdala which is the part of the brain that does freak out and goes into fight or flight and sort of um is the most sort of well the oldest part of our brain so we we can treat life as though it's sort of there's like a lion outside the door waiting to eat us and um yeah I have a necklace because that reminds me of so I named that part of my brain which I know a lot of other people do and um, I can now tell the, the the tone of when that's creeping up, like this panicky alarm. And I see it in other people now when they're getting very panicked with me about something. And I'm like, I know, I sort of can know now physiologically like what's going on there. And I really encourage people to, to name it because you can sort of separate it out from, from who you are. Because I don't think deep down we're all panicky people. I think we can all know what it feels like to be calm. And I like to tune into that more. Okay, I've got to go to audience questions somewhat reluctantly because even though I know they're brilliant, I have so many more things to ask you. Um, It's gone very quickly. It has gone so quickly. Uh, So if you achieve something and are happy with it, Arnie asks, isn't that a lot better than not achieving the something you set out to do? So why is that a success myth? Or or is it, I I would add? No, I, I would say that's that's your definition of success. Whatever you have achieved and you feel good about it, amazing, carry on. I think what's interesting is when you achieve something and you feel flat, it, that's a signpost that actually that, you know, that was never really your goal in the first place. That might have been, you know, an outside validation or your pet pleasing your parents, you know, that sort of thing. So no, it sounds like you're um, you're winning there. Yes, because you, you, you talk about anticlimax a lot in the book, you know, these things you, you reach to and then it's a bit of an anticlimax or a slightly empty feeling. But if it's not that, then then that is essentially, that is a success that you've defined. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And Tanya says, what advice would you give to someone expressing hopelessness and lack of direction in life? Well, I would recommend a book that's actually not mine, um, which is, even though mine you know is soothing for this reason but Alain de Botton's School of Life um he's there's a book called Reasons to be Hopeful and I read that during a similar time where I was like looking around feeling a little bit stumped and it's really really brilliant and Alain gave a quote for the success myth which was amazing so I feel like they're very similar sort of books but it really helped and it was really lovely around the smaller things in life and can give you that perspective of things are going to be okay yeah, he, he wrote, and it is it is a really great, great quote, and it's true, highly comforting, gently reminds us that it is what we are, not what we do, that will always ultimately count. And I think that that was the point that I was sort of asking you about earlier in time, in terms of what's so important is to take the space to think of, you know, who we are, 
not who society is telling us that we should be. And I think that you have explored that a lot openly, I, you know, in articles and things like that. And it's it's really useful to hear from you. You know, how do you do that? How, how do you say, OK, society expects me perhaps at this age to be, you know, a mother, a whatever, it, you know, whatever it might be, uh, not not single. There are so many expectations. How do you have the strength of mind to say, but I'm not and I'm fine with that. And that's my success. Mm, I mean, it's really hard. And there's a there's a lot in the book actually around this around how, you know, there's people that would actively avoid going out and seeing their friends because they knew that what they wanted was so different that they would feel so awful about themselves that they don't have anything to contribute to do with milestones around the table. And I think it's a real thing. And it's not easy. But I think ultimately, this book is about not betraying yourself. So you can we can do what we know what to do to make everyone else happy. We're taught very early on, especially as women, how to make other people happy, how to put other people first, how to prioritise others. And it's just very interesting, like treat it as a social experiment to not do that and and just notice how you feel. Because letting someone else down doesn't feel great, but letting yourself down really doesn't feel great. And I think I know what one I'd rather do. And so I think it's more about that. And you say successful people that you've interviewed largely are contrarians, your word. And in a way, I think that that fits with what you're, you know, that that is a positive way of looking at it, actually not conforming. Yeah. And even in tiny ways, this isn't about totally ripping up the rule book. You know, we have to function in society, sadly. Um, We can't just do whatever we want all the time. But, um, you know, it's quite a liberating feeling to sort of define your version of success, stick to it, and also watch how other people interact with you, because I think actually it's quite contagious. Um, we, we talked about com- comparison, and, and who is it who says comparison is the thief of joy? Someone very well-known that I should remember. But Arnie asks, you know, whether comparisons are the main cause of our unhappiness. And I, I think the main cause of the unhappiness that's driven by this idea of success because of permanently comparing would you say that's the biggest problem is comparing ourselves to others I think so but that's if you're really unsure of who you are and and what you want which a lot of us are but I think what's interesting is when you get clear which I hope the book helps you do on what your version is you do tune out other people a bit more in terms of you know your path a little bit more so for example just as an example I know that I probably don't want to have children. So I'm not triggered by other people having them because I'm like, that's amazing for you, not for me. And so I think you can really reframe it as um, not comparing, but but kind of almost being a reminder of like, oh, that's amazing for you. That's not something for me. And, and putting that barrier between you because dotting around and thinking and comparing yourself to everyone is a sign maybe that you're not as rooted in what you ultimately want. Mm. Which, as you say, is it is hard, and um, there's so. I mean, many, none of this is easy, by the no. way. <laughs> there are so many drifting um, currents and things telling us who to be and what to be and where to go and what to to wish for. But actually, I f- I think that when people read the book, they'll see some of the bits of advice you give at the end of each chapter. These small things about sort of sitting down with a pencil or, or you know analyzing who you are, what you have done, making those lists, being kinder to yourself, treating, talking to yourself as a friend. All of those are actually very practical ways to help with that. 
someone says, what is your strategy to avoid future burnouts? Asking as someone who is just working her way out of one. Oh, I'm sorry that you've been through that. It's really, really rough. I took a lot of wisdom from Yasmin Khan, who is an amazing writer, who said to treat your energy like a bank balance and how, you know, you wouldn't necessarily go into like a massive overdraft if you could help it because you would know that you would be insufficient in your funds. And I really treat my energy like that now. I can't go into my overdraft as much. I don't have as much there to save me and and sort of um, keep me going. I have to really make sure I'm topped up. Like I have to make sure I have money in the account or I don't know where this analogy is going, but you know what I mean? I need to have the reserves and I need to make sure I'm sort of in the plus. So it's really about, you know, back to your previous point, you know, writing down what lights you up, write down what gives you energy, write down who makes you feel good about yourself and it's really about that self-knowledge um, so that you can know what drains you because it's the reality, isn't it? Like you can't change what drains you. It just sort of is. And if there's someone in your life, for example, who makes you feel completely depleted every time you hang out with them, it's, it's hard to change that. Um, and you sort of need to kind of put boundaries in place, really, because you, you can't change them. You sort of have to change your own dynamics. There are so many things I want to ask. We've got a, a little bit of time left. In what you just said, you, you mentioned the things that sort of make you feel better. And there's a lot of talk in the book about just appreciating those small joys in life and how much actual happiness they can bring. Someone once said to me, which unnerved me, and your book has made me feel better about it. And I'm really interested to hear your take that perhaps, you know, enjoying these, really prioritising the small joys, coffee, the sunshine, um, can stop you from prioritising the bigger things in life the the bigger values like sort of a family or you know if you are if you're so invested in small joys you you perhaps um are it's sort of like a selfish thing I wonder what your thought is with that hmm I mean I just find I would find that interesting from taking a step back that we would feel bad about doing that because we we do only live once and why not enjoy the sunrise and the cups of tea and the coffee? And actually people, we, we see from these small things that they ladder up into the big things. And actually the way we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And if we're happier and healthier and living longer by doing all those things, because they make such a big impact on our on our mental health, then ultimately we're going to be stronger and fitter and healthier to actually achieve our bigger goals. So I think they're connected. I don't think they're a distraction. I think they are really fundamental, actually. Yeah. Yes, you remind me of, I think it was Julia Ravy who um, said, actually, by giving yourself those things, you then give yourself as a much better, more selfless person to others, to your family, because, you you know, you're happy within yourself. And I'm now stretching your analogy about investing, and you were not talking about actual money, but you do talk about actual money in the book. Uh, again, it's a really interesting chapter, which feeds into this idea that this idea of a certain amount of money that we should have or a certain amount of, of wealth that we need in order to be sort of successful or complete or live a happy life is, is a myth because actually you should reconsider what is enough for you. I mean, again, I found this incredibly helpful starting to think, oh, actually, you know what? I could be very happy with this amount doing this in my life. I don't need those sorts of things at all for completion. It sounds a bit cheesy, but... That's what you've discovered talking to a lot of people, isn't it? Actually, you know, it it really isn't that you need the things that perhaps we are 
taught that we should need. People are very happy in other ways. And you and you certainly, obviously, as you mentioned, have to check the privilege which enables you to say that. But at the same time, we do think we want more than we actually probably do. Yes. I mean, the, the money chapter is the most nuanced chapter. And that probably the chapter I spent the longest on because getting that right in terms of being real, you know, the reality of the fact that money does actually improve our lives. It does. It improves our health. It improves our happiness. Money does actually do something, but it also is just a currency like many other currencies in our life. And endless currency is not endless happiness. And it's sort of really separating out this myth that like we need X amount of millions of pounds to be happy. And actually capping it at a certain point, which is so interesting to me, sitting down and working out how much money you actually need versus this scaremongering fear mentality of I need endless amounts is really fascinating. So I I don't think we've, I mean, I would love to talk more about it, but I feel like the chapter, you have to read the chapter because it's such a nuanced discussion. No, it is. And and that's exactly the point that I think I take away. Obviously, you you need it a certain amount of money to almost be in that luxury situation to analyze you know yes, how much you exactly. do need but at the same exactly. time if you do sit down and say actually i am happy with this and this idea that we have to always have sort of a certain amount coming into our account i think people are often asking you know are you paid enough do you you know do you earn enough and actually that enough is is quite a high and people imagine that they do need a lot more i mean you even yes it's a very nuanced chapter you even discuss a universal basic income in that chapter and your thoughts on on that i i will dot 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 that to people because they can go off and buy the book and and learn about it no it's it's a fascinating one and also just as a side note it's really interesting how like pay attention to how much like companies market to you that they want you to have more money and they want you to have a bigger mortgage they want you to add things on they want you to keep investing like there's a lot of people that kind of want us to want that and it's actually really rebellious to be like actually I'm all right over here with like my version of enough um it's like society doesn't want us to ever feel like we've got enough I feel but that's the main point isn't it if you say I'm all right with my version of enough I felt like that is the moment where you can be at peace because then you are not striving for things you don't necessarily want purely because you feel you have to earn more. I think that's the sort of um, peace with yourself that you you come by, if you can say that. Yes, and you're not sort of a walking billboard anymore for what your money can buy you, I think. Like I noticed how much that I would want to buy something so I could look a certain way or, you know be accepted, I think. And I think when that all drops away, when you do feel enough, um, yeah, it can feel quite I mean, quite profound, actually. Um, as somebody says that talking about what uh, we were sort of saying about small joys and, and big joys and, and selfishness, and uh, they said, I've noticed the difference in changing small things and adding value to my day by taking breaks, eating properly, making time for myself to avoid burnout. But also what I have to give back to my work and family is is benefiting as a result. I mean, mm. I, I, is that something that you have found? Because you do talk about in the book how when you were sort of consumed by this ambition and this drive for success and working all the time it was at the expense of other things and now you have found I mean now I can't use the word balance but now you have found a much more sort of wholesome experience in which you do um, really appreciate the big bellyache laughter nights in restaurants with friends more than and perhaps whereas once you would have said I can't come I'm, I'm working. 
Yes, yes. I mean, it's nice to not be as uptight as I once was. Um, Yeah, I think it's just my sort of, I'm broadening out my definition of success now. Success did used to mean sort of be that traditional version, I suppose, that I've been unpicking in the book. And now success is kind of, like you say, quite a wholesome day. You know, did I go for my swim, for example? Tick. I did something for my body today that, you know, had the coffee, um, whatever it is, it really is just like very small and not to give anything away in the book, but I talk about the traditional versions of success that we're all meant to want at the beginning of the book. And at the end of the book, I've interviewed lots of different people, all different backgrounds on what success actually means. And I think you'll be surprised what people say. Mm. Emma, somehow the hour has whizzed by. There's so much more for people to read. I would say that it it really is quite a freeing experience reading it because actually um, it sort of frees us from these shoulds that you talk about, these sort of coulds, these ideas of what we should feel, what we should want and who we should be and just really ask us to sit back and say actually like who am I you know you could have called it what do I want what do I want um, yes as well but thank you so much and thank you all for signing in um, and for great questions as always and I should have said that Charles said great interview great cover and then suddenly said but I need to leave (laughs) when the questions (laughs) came. But I think uh, we will relay uh, his compliments. Emma, thank you very, very much. This episode starred Emma Gannon and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The producer was Nicole Wong and our editor is John Doughty. The series is made by me, Vas Christodoulou and Esme Bright. Emma's new book, The Success Myth, is out now. If you love this podcast and want more of it, or just want to show your support and help keep us on the air, consider joining How To Plus. Plus members can watch our live streams live and hear the podcast version shortly afterward, usually weeks, sometimes months in advance of everyone else. And there are a whole lot of other benefits too, including half-price live event tickets, big discounts on our cultural courses, and much more. Use the code POD50 for half-price on your membership. That's pod, all caps, 5-0. Till next time, thanks for listening. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.